a privilege as we worship the one only true God to read from his word, the Holy Scriptures. And this afternoon from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. And we'll read the first 24 verses, Acts 19, 1 to 24. Here we are told by the Spirit of God, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise or cast out you, demon spirits, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself, so he sent into Macedonia, sorry, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, 
brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And we'll stop our reading there. Our focus will be actually the passage we read, but especially the verses 18 and 19 and 20. And the theme of the sermon is what true reformation always brings about. Dear congregation, when deciding or told to come here this week, I checked over my sermons and I thought, you know what, I'm going to preach a sermon I preached on Reformation Day last October. I had two sermons, Reformation Sunday, and the first sermon was what true Reformation is always about. That was the morning sermon. And true Reformation is always about coming back to God's Word. My text was from Romans 3, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul says, Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. We go by God's Word when we are truly reformed. And we live by God's Word. And when that's the case, by God's grace and Spirit in our lives, then this is what follows also as expressed in this afternoon's Reformation-related sermon what true reformation always brings about. So what true reformation is about and what true reformation always brings about. And for that subject this afternoon, we want to look at Acts 19, especially the verses 18 to 20. In these verses, we see clearly what true reformation always brings about. We learn about a brokenness for sins in people's lives and of a breaking from sin, and of a bonfire of repentance, you might say, in wholehearted devotion to God. In studying this passage together, Acts 19, let's first give an overview of it, taking in the whole context, and then get a closer view of it, considering the specific content of verse 18 and 19. And lastly, look at the climactic fruit of this what true reformation always brings about. With an overview of our text, considering its whole context, Acts 19 tells us about Paul's concentrated ministry for up to three years in Ephesus. While verse 10 mentions, you read it with me, that he was there two years, later on in chapter 20, verse 31, he says that, He'd, watched, he'd been there for three years. He says, therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, especially in his third missionary journey now, was a launching pad ministry that also had impact throughout all Asia. His ministry in Ephesus, in other words, you can say, became like the center of the Gentile mission outreach for that whole region. Now, from the first verses of this chapter 19, we learn about Paul meeting with a small group of disciples of John the Baptist who had not heard about the crucified and risen Savior of sinners. They didn't live in an internet world. They took seriously, these 12 men, John the Baptist's ministry and his earnest call to repentance, but they did not yet know the full gospel message. However, when Paul 
taught them that gospel further, then we are told they believed in Jesus. And they too, like the believers in Acts 2, had their own experience of Pentecost blessings with certain signs of such, being filled and blessed by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, during the early church and the time of the apostles still, there were these extraordinary signs and things that happened that took place in divine confirmation, you might say, of the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth, Jew and Gentile. Next we are told in verses 8 to 10 that Paul for at least three months sought to minister the true gospel in the Jewish synagogue there in Ephesus. But meeting with ongoing resistance and hardening of the heart against the gospel truth about the way, which referred to the whole gospel way of Jesus Christ, Paul decided with so much hindrance and opposition to move the center of of his ministry to another place. Reasoning daily, we are told, in the school of Tyrannus, still in Ephesus, We know nothing further about this Tyrannus as such, except that the building that he had became, as it were, the new address of the new church plant in Ephesus. Verses 11 to 12 goes on to tell us about how Paul's gospel ministry in Ephesus was for a time at least accompanied with amazing, miraculous signs of healing by the hand of Paul. We know from Hebrews 2, verse 4, that... Again, in the early stage of the New Testament gospel ministry, God mercifully added signs and wonders by the hands of the apostles, all for the confirmation and spreading of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of sinners. In this case, as stated with Paul in Ephesus, it was quite powerful and striking. Indeed, as said in verse 9 of Acts 19, Even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. You know, as Reformed churches, in the post-apostolic age of the Christian church, since the time of Acts, including in our times, it's a sad and bad mistake to think that we need these kinds of extraordinary signs and wonders today as well. Again, this should be viewed as something God did, congregation, in the beginning stage with the beginning and launching of the New Testament gospel ministry. But now, having the whole word of God, you and I, we are called to teach and preach that word knowing also from the signs and wonders of the past accompanying that word, how truly reliable and all-powerful is God's gospel word to whoever has ears to hear and eyes to see. It's very sad and it's wrong, we would say, when gospel ministries today want to focus on reproducing miraculous signs somehow rather than concentrating on preaching the gospel, the gospel word and way. Today, sadly and wrongly, we come across, and you may have come across them too, so-called church leaders and evangelists who dare to claim that they have power to do miraculous things, similar to what happened under Paul's ministry in Ephesus for a time. But, But even Paul never made such claims And here let us take note what Luke especially states in verse 11. 
In verse 11, it doesn't say, does it, that Paul worked unusual miracles. Is that what it says there? No. Look at the text. It says, now God worked unusual miracles. Literally, miracles not of an ordinary kind. This was God's doing congregation as he sovereignly, yes, decided for a time to do. Opportunists and false teachers today who promote their doing signs and wonders should be viewed always as frauds and those who are out to take advantage of others. I read even of one so-called gospel evangelist who was offering a specially blessed handkerchief by him that had been dipped in the Jordan River and that if prayerfully applied would surely bring healing at a cost of only, well, between 30 or $40 depending on the size of the handkerchief. Well, that's simply wicked trickery, congregation. And let us be discerning of these kinds of misuse of Scripture and spiritual abuse towards others. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Well, you might ask the reasons for the emphasis of this point. But it's also because in the next section of our text passage, of the chapter, Acts 19, verse 13 to 17, we are actually told, aren't we, about some Jewish opportunists who thought to try to imitate the miracles of the Apostle Paul that he did by the name of Jesus. Did you know before this story of the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest? It's not even certain, by the way, whether the Sceva actually was a Jewish chief priest or if that's what he liked to think of himself. Some even have suggested perhaps he was a chief priest in the heathen temples of, in Ephesus. We're not sure. Whatever the case, we're told that these seven sons of this rather prominent Jew, Sceva, thought, well, here was an opportunity for fame and gain for them. If they too could just remove, exercise, cast out demons and heal others in Jesus' name. And this is what they attempted to do. The text tells us. What happened? Children, what happened when they did this, when they tried to do this with a very demon-possessed man? We're told the evil spirits from that first demon-possessed person they tried this on actually became filled with rage. Such a rage that this unnamed person, what does the text say? He leaped on them and he overpowered them, those seven sons of Sceva, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. He gave them a good beating. And the one verb participle about them being wounded is in a verb tense suggesting that they received such a beating that it left them, all seven of them, permanently injured in some way. The result was, congregation, the whole city and region became aware of this event. And it caused all Jews and Greeks to realize the Christian religion and gospel of Jesus Christ the Savior was not something to play games with and something to trifle with. No, this one true religion is serious business and one of almighty power. And beautifully then in verse 17, did you see that? The text states, along with the general respect and the awe felt over against the Christian faith, at the same time, what does it say? The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And the verb tense in the original means Jesus, his name, kept on being magnified. In other words, congregation, the cause of the Lord was triumphing, advancing slowly, 
but surely. And indeed, this is always what true reformation brings about. Isn't it right? When we are faithful to the word. Yes, God takes care of this. That this is happening by his almighty gospel power and Holy Spirit blessing. When we want to be faithful to his word, he will bless it in his sovereign grace and power. And how encouraging to know this, don't you think? Also for in our times, here also in Langley, B.C., even in, even in and, and even if and when, for us also in Calgary, when we don't see the visible evidences as we might like, let's keep praying and asking for the Holy Spirit to bless His Word. And you can be sure God will not be mocked. And He will not have His Word returned to Him void, empty. No, but it will prosper as He determines in His sovereign grace for Jesus' sake alone. And isn't this same what compelled Paul and the early church and in all their gospel ministry? They knew God was behind it all. And also, likewise, many centuries later, talking about the Reformation, the Reformation movement of the 16th century, they believed in the Word and the God of the Word, and God blessed it. May we not believe that God triune still today will cause His gospel cause to triumph to the glory of his name and for the salvation and sanctification of his people and for their Christian witness to the end of the age. Indeed, also here in Langley, B.C., as well as in Calgary, Alberta. Yes, even in our 21st century dark world. You know, nothing changes anyone and everyone like the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to us from out of all God's word. Well, how will it show? How will it show when this is your and my hearty conviction and confidence and comfort too by God's grace and spirit? Well, here let us move on from an overview of our text passage to a closer view of our text passage, looking particular now to the content of verses 18 to 20. The overview we just did is also the immediate context of what we learn about in the verses 18 to 20. What are we told in these verses? We are told about the Christians in Ephesus under the influence and impact of the steady gospel ministry by Paul and his companions that they were being much convicted of their sins and truly repenting of them and wanting wholeheartedly to part from their sins and their way of evil in their lives still. As I said earlier, our text passage is a demonstration by God's grace and spirit of people being brought to brokenness of heart for their sins and of breaking from their sins and living in wholehearted devotion to God. Here observe with me the text itself. 18 to 20. The text reads, And many who had believed, so they were believing, and under the ministry of the word, they came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced, were told, magic, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So that the word, and so the word of the Lord, says, grew mightily and prevailed. Do we understand what's happening here? Clearly, What we need to see is, under the ongoing ministry of the word, there came true and increasing conviction of sins in the lives of these confessing believers in Ephesus. 
at least for many of them, as the text tells us. And congregation of Langley, isn't this always what true reformation brings about? The truth about our sins and sinfulness is not skipped over when there is true reformation in our lives and in our churches, but then sin is taken ever so seriously. God's true people are those who become truly repentant and increasingly repentant of all sin under the ongoing ministry of the gospel word when it's well. You know, when churches and church people don't want to hear about their ongoing and remaining sins and sinfulness, that is never a good sign of being a healthy Reformation church. Yes, of course, there is more to say, but this point, even the godliest will know and agree. We need to be reminded of the reality and the depth of our sins and sinfulness again and again, and to be daily and constantly living lives of true repentance for all our sins and sinfulness. You cannot know and enjoy the forgiveness of sins without daily repenting of your sins and sinfulness regularly. The scripture expressly teaches us what describes God's people healthy and holy in God's ways is people being of a broken and contrite heart, considering always what sinners we are in ourselves. This is what happened in Ephesus under the word. And again, it most definitely happened as well in the 16th century Reformation movement, long past. What leads people, what leads people to, to magnify and rejoice in Christ the Savior is realizing time and again our need, our great need of Jesus and how with him and his finished work on sinners' behalf, oh, there's boundless mercy and endless forgiving grace initially and continually even for as often as we come to him in repentance and faith. Well, it's the same your, and your conviction here and your confession of faith, even today, this evening. You may know the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses nailed on the church door was this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying, repent ye, etc., intended the whole life of believers on earth should be a constant penance or an ongoing repentance. Well, our text is very helpful now in giving us more details on what true repentance actually looks like as worked by God in our hearts by the Spirit and Word. For it tells us not only did the Ephesian believers confess their sins genuinely and publicly, owning, owning up to their secret faults and their hidden sins even, but notice what they did in connection with one ongoing sin and temptation to which many were prone, specifically in that area. You know, sometimes certain areas are more prone to certain sins. I think Vancouver Island is probably more prone to New Age baloney, New Age paganism. My, my, my little experience... But in, in Ephesus, there was a fascination 
for all kinds of superstitious things and, and magic arts and occultism and, and secret charms and such like, possibly related somehow to, to the famous temple and idol goddess Diana in Ephesus. The point is, we are told, when God's people under the word were convicted of their sins, either for a first time or afresh, then they could no longer live with any indulgence in those same superstitions and that magic and the occult ways. They gave it all up, the text says. And they did so genuinely and dramatically. Children, what did they do with their particular problem? What did the text say? They gathered all their books and their charms and their gadgets of magic and superstition and they put them in a big pile and they had a huge bonfire. That's what the text says, to burn them all up. Take note, they didn't try to sell the books to others, not even to make money for the church. No, but they broke with their sins and they did so in a way that they couldn't and wouldn't come back to it. And notice, they also didn't want to leave temptation to others to fall into it either. They burnt it all up. We're told the cost of the books and gadgets of magic was very high. Probably, like it says, it says the text says 50,000 pieces of silver and people have estimated it probably is equal to 50,000 days of wages for the average person. So I calculated, well, that's probably about like 136 years of life earnings of the average person. Well, that, that's a lot of money. Even if you just make a little, 136 years of wages is a lot. But they gladly suffered that loss, being only too mindful and thankful to part from their past in this way and to keep from future temptation to sin again. I was struck by one commentator uh, saying about the cost of this bonfire, quote, It must be remembered that all ancient books were dear compared with ours living in the post-printing press age and computer age as we do now. And, and said this commentator, books of this class, dealing with magic and superstition, here described, are always rated far beyond their real worth and their commercial value. That's, that's still true today, by the way. Whatever the case, the point is, we need to understand, when a believer looks to be rid of sin in true faith in Jesus then you know and discover too, always you gain so much more in the way of true repentance than in whatever it may seem to cost you or whatever apparent loss it may bring you. Nothing can compare, congregation, to the value, to the value and worth of being saved by Jesus from our sins and sinfulness and being cleansed and made holy. Isn't this every true Christian's testimony. How true what someone said in this regard. When a person is willing to give up valuable things of his old life in order to follow Christ, we know that he or she has been truly converted. Isn't it good here to ask, is that same evident in your life and mine, beloved, by God's grace and spirit? And 
Would you agree, isn't this always what true reformation brings about? Among young and old. When God's word strikes home to our minds and hearts in a saving and sanctifying way, then we can no longer tolerate any sin in our lives, can we? And we become diligent by God's grace and spirit in the fight against sin, all sin in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And we pray for a tender conscience not to allow any transgression. Can you identify with this as well in your life? In your heart? Do we deal so honestly and radically with sin in our lives, reflecting as in our text, being truly broken-hearted for our sins and radically breaking from them in earnest, wholehearted devotion to the Lord? Here consider this searching application from another. And I quote, What would be burned today if the Spirit's conviction through the ministry of the gospel word swept the church? In our times. Yeah, let, let me ask you that personally now. With each one of us here in church this evening. What sins or sinful treasures or pleasures maybe. Or ungodly addictions perhaps. Have you yet been clinging to. And still refusing to let go. Are there magazines in your so called Christian home. That by no means should be there. Never mind certain books or DVDs, or worldly song recordings, or maybe certain computer games? What worldliness fills your mind and heart still that you are still excusing or slow to give up, though deep down you know you ought to get rid of them? Indeed, for God's honor and for your own well-being and in Christian testimony to others. What, in, what ungodly practices are you or I maybe still holding on to that really are not consistent with confessing to be a follower of Jesus Christ as only Savior and Lord of your life? Should you really be watching that movie just out and so relished by the world and filled with a lot of ungodly, wicked acts not to speak of so many foul words and curse words, so much that's dishonoring to God and our neighbor. Congregation, shouldn't we be willing to give up all that doesn't help us in the Christian life? Lived all out for God and good and to pursue instead all that can really help us in the Christian life. Lived all out for God and good. Are you and I Sincere and genuine, dealing radically with sin still in our lives. Do we care about that? Doesn't the Bible teach us that God's true people are those who cannot live with any conscious sin and remaining sin in their hearts and lives, not in thought, word, or deed? Do you know the prayer of the psalmist? Search me, O God. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Is that you and me too? Or not so? Is there, God forbid, one or more here among us this evening even, holding on to secret sin while pretending all is well with you? 
Is there among us one or more who are at best religious hypocrites? Just. Still, still loving your sins and this ungodly world, but yes, attending church too, well, because maybe you want to make a good impression on others, or maybe because you feel you just, you just have to. When in reality, you are not at all living in true faith and repentance before God and your neighbor. God knows. He knows everything about all of us. Is Acts 19, 18 to 20 true of us all or not? your congregation. What is your answer to this searching question before God now? The God who knows all about us, you and me. Should we not learn too, beloved, from the fact that these believers in Ephesus with their bonfire, they didn't only break from their sins, but they made it very difficult, if not impossible, to go back to the same sins of the past. As one put it, Having destroyed these books, they could not easily resume their practice. Are we that way too? Shouldn't we be that way when it's well with our soul? Here, listen to the following commentary, which I myself also found very convicting. These Ephesian Christians, wrote this person, had come to Christ, and they were burning their bridges to the old life behind them. They were not going back over the bridges into their same old sins. When people come to Christ, or better put, when Christ saves sinners like us, then we ought not to leave any doors open to our old ways. We ought to make a clean break with the world. This means leaving the old haunts and habits of sin and breaking off with old sinful companions. Many a Christian has failed because he or she did not break with these things as God calls us to do by his strength and spirit in us and with us. There's an old story went on this person of a farmer who came to a town once a week and hitched his horse to a hitching post and went into the saloon and became intoxicated. Then one day, praise God, the farmer was converted, so it was said. And the next time he came to town, a Christian friend watched him and noticed that he he hitched his horse to the same post near the saloon. I'm afraid of that, said the Christian to himself. And sure enough, it was not long until the old temptation overcame the farmer and he went back to drinking just as as he had done before. And as his friend had feared, congregation, still quoting this person now, when a person comes to Jesus, he must change his hitching posts. He must not willingly and carelessly go back into the devil's territory. Oh, isn't this so true, beloved? Also for your own experience. And as we think of this literature, this this, uh, stuff, in Acts 19, all burned up and away in Ephesus long ago. Are we not reminded, dear congregation, young and old, that we perhaps need to have a burning? Maybe not literally, maybe maybe even literally, but either way, you get the picture, the message, each one of us, are you listening now? Surely, again, this is what true reformation always brings about. 
by God's grace and spirit in our lives when true Christians and truly Christian indeed. You know, when the 16th century Reformation came about, there was a radical turning from old ways. And it also helped bring about and combat so much outward and man-made worldly religion. They turned from that. That which was all just empty show and without the life of true faith and repentance. And again, it was with the discovery of the new and, and full emphasis of the gospel, Jesus Christ and all his glory and riches on behalf of sinners and being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. That message of the gospel, that's what brought about true reformation, both in creed and conduct. Congregation, Always and again, it's the gospel word of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior, that is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. And it transforms life. Isn't it graciously and gloriously ever the case when once we by grace through faith belong to Christ, we know how wondrous is his salvation and his saving help in all our earthly pilgrimage. For God's people, nothing can give more peace and joy and comfort and hope as belonging to Christ and following after Him in spirit and truth, in word and deed. And this then becomes, doesn't it, the longing and the prayer and the care of all God's true people to abide in Christ and wholeheartedly to follow after Him and all His gospel word and way without holding anything back from Him and for Him. Well, how wonderful when we here may know and show this too, dear congregation, by God's grace and spirit, and that we may encourage each other in this gospel way in our homes and in our church family and in our fellowship and in our worship, especially too to be so guided and strengthened week after week under the ministry of the word. This all becomes, doesn't it, the highlight for God's people time and again. It's what you live for and it's what helps you live for God. Yes, always and again to sit under Jesus' feet and to learn of Him and His gospel word in the way we should go and the way we should not go. I think I need that my whole life long. In fact, the older I get, I think I need it more and more. I can't trust myself a single moment till my dying breath. But I can trust Him. He's trustworthy. I'm not. He is. Well, do we know of each other that these are the things we prize to? And do we so pray and care for one another in the good fight of faith while still living in this sinful and ungodly world and yet dealing with our old sinful nature and being so weak in ourselves and so prone to wander and to fall on our own? What true reformation always brings about by God's grace and spirit is a life congregation of humble, hearty, steadfast dependency on the Lord and in growing devotion to Him in all our ways. And when this is not true of us, of you or me, or any here, then you need to realize you're probably not converted. And what reason to call out to God in Christ, pleading for His mercy to save a guilty, lost sinner as yourself? Will you be truly converted, even today? When you are, it begins a life of daily conversion. By God's grace and spirit. Will you so call on God to save you from yourself? Or will you harden your heart, your mind and heart, against the gospel message? And go on in your own ways, your double-minded ways, 
your foolish ways. Don't listen to the devil who says to you and the world, you're fine apart from God and Christ. You're okay. Don't be fretting about anything. No, no. Still for the 21st century, even in our woke world, this is the truth. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides, remains on him. That's the gospel word. It doesn't change. Also not in our age. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Well, to further encourage us in this one and only gospel way, notice yet the climactic result when God blesses his word in a saving and sanctifying way and his people live truly converted lives, wholly consecrated to God in thought, word, and deed. The text in Acts 19.20 makes clear such faithful, fruitful Christian living left holy impact on the society of Ephesus and in Ephesus. It began to turn the world upside down in that place, as told earlier in Acts 17, verse 6. In the case of Ephesus, which was the center of the idol worship of Diana, well, in that city, the workshops and the businesses related to the idol worship of Diana That whole trade of Diana idols and false worship, it began to lose attraction and it began to lose customers. And and the people who owned those shops, they expressed their their concerns and their dismay about this. And the rest of the chapter tells about that. But all that we want to bring out now from this is that when God's people are living wholeheartedly, living lives in union with Christ and in submission to all His Word, you know what? That brings a mighty Christian witness to the watching world. And it makes room for the spreading, the further spreading of the Christian gospel message in word and deed. Isn't this again what true reformation always brings about by the grace and power of God? Not only did it happen in Ephesus in our text, but also in Europe in the 16th century and later in Great Britain in the 17th century and then in America with the Great Awakening and then in revival since then, as stated in Acts, in Acts 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And again, in the Greek verb tenses of that phrase, it, mean, it means that there was an ongoing growing and prevailing of the word about the Lord Jesus as the only Savior of sinners whom we desperately need. And there was a growing influence and impact of that gospel word. In the world of that day, having saving, godly, converting, God-glorifying impact and influence in all kinds of ways in people's lives. You know, to date, even secular historians of the 16th century Reformation, they they do admit how Christianity, as rediscovered and followed with the Protestant Reformation, it literally transformed the world for good in more ways than can be said even. Not just spiritually, but socially, economically, politically. The saving, sanctifying fruit of the Reformation brought so much needed reform and earthly good in the dark world of endless sin and misery and injustice and evil on so many fronts. Today we're seeing the exact opposite, aren't we? As we're throwing the Bible aside, we're seeing the whole world get more and more wicked and lost and confused and troubled and dismayed. 
congregation. Nothing does a person better, nor a church better, nor a country better, nor this world better than if people truly hear God's word and come under the gospel to true conversion with the fruit of living in true love to God and to our neighbor. And this is what true reformation always brings about by God's grace and spirit. So much for God's glory and for the salvation of ourselves and for the common good of others. We see it here in what is told us in Acts 19. For one example, has happened in Ephesus. And we know it was the same with the Protestant Reformation. What reasons then to pray? Don't you think with me the cry of Jeremiah long ago, chapter 22, 29. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Well, will we all, one and all, promote such a message in spirit and truth? then for certain we will take seriously what true reformation always is about and what it always brings about. Even so, may God bless his word today and and make us a blessing in our generation and for the generations following, as he did with in Paul's days and as he did in the Reformation movement and since. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let's pray for that. Let's live accordingly. Yes, that the word of the Lord may prevail over all the world and that many sinners may be added to Christ's church and kingdom while it's yet the day of grace. You won't forget this, will you? What by God's grace, God accomplishes through reformation in us and through us. Also is taught in Acts 19. May God bless his word. In Jesus' name, amen.